0: Welcome to the Michigan Minds podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. I'm a sexual assault nurse examiner. Uh, I also have training as being a mental health nurse. And what I noticed in my clinical work uh, is often the lack of emphasis on the healing and recovery process for survivors. Um, I think a lot of media attention gets played to the actual violent encounters themselves. Uh, And I really wanted to learn more about what healing looks like for survivors and how can we make our environments um, more receptive to helping survivors heal uh, after these experiences. And so uh, I've involved myself in research that looks at healing and recovery from a variety of angles. Um, The work that I think I'm most proud of uh, is some domestic work that I do. When I was a PhD student at University of Michigan, uh, I decided to do a study that was really aiming to explore not only survivors' healing journeys and what they've experienced, but also what their day-to-day feels and looks like. Uh, So the work that I did, we started by just interviewing folks and trying to just figure out who they are and what they've experienced in their life, both highs and lows. Um, we ask them different questions like how it feels to be in their body, um, who are the support people uh, for them in their life. Um, we also ask them about feelings and symptoms that they might be having, um, what's relevant to today and also some things that they have overcome uh and then after we interviewed them to get a better sense of who they were and their survivor experience uh, we had them use their personal phones or cameras and go out into their world and take photographs of both healing moments in their life as well as darker moments and so this really provided the opportunity to really get a glimpse into what a day in the life of a survivor might look and feel like Uh, and so by having those photographs and having the interview data that we had Um, we were able to do a lot with it uh, and really amplify what healing might look like um, for people as they navigate their journey. Uh, I also do a little bit of international work. And so another really interesting perspective is how healing looks culturally uh, and how violence manifests culturally uh, and trying to really understand those perspectives that maybe aren't as Western um, that usually get the media attention. So being able to balance with uh, what's happening in America, but also what's happening internationally has been really a a great experience. So unfortunately, sexual assault is often a hidden issue. Uh, We might hear about it in the media, but I think a lot of folks don't recognize that a lot of survivors interact with them daily in their own lives. Um, There's also a lot of stigma and myths surrounding survivorship thinking that uh, sexual assault looks a certain way or survivors look and act a certain way. And so I really think it's important for us to be educated about the realities of sexual violence uh, and how our actions and the way we speak about the subject really matters to survivors in their recovery. So there's two main misconceptions that I notice. And one I, I have already mentioned, but I think the biggest one, or one of the biggest ones, is that sexual assault happens to a certain type of person or sexual assault looks a certain way. Uh, so we know that sexual assault can happen to anyone. We know it disproportionately affects women and as well as folks who are trans, genderqueer, and non-binary, um, but it also can happen to men too. And so I think broadening our idea of who can experience sexual violence uh, is something that's really important. I think uh, people also struggle uh, when they often have these experiences, what sort of counts as sexual assault Um, And if it doesn't look like things that they see on TV or they hear in the media, um, is it worth seeking help for, is it worth reporting? And so we know that sexual assault is beyond physical force. Uh, There's also power disparities, age differences that can contribute to sexual violence, intimidation, or incapacitation for alcohol or other substances. And so I just think it's important for us to recognize that sexual assault looks different for a lot of people. And these stereotypes that we have can really be harmful uh, for people trying to come forward. Uh, The other thing that I think is important that there's many misconceptions about is reporting. Um, So I think the main myths that I recognize when I hear it in the media and just in general dialogue are that false reports happen all the time uh, when we know that false reports, while they are incredibly serious, are also incredibly rare. Um, And so there's um, this sort of catchphrase that I've heard being thrown around, and I looked in the data to really figure out if this is true. But from what we know, it really does sound true that men are actually, and usually, unfortunately, it is men who are throwing some of these terms around, thinking that they're going to be falsely accused. And we know that men are probably actually more likely to experience sexual violence themselves than to actually be falsely accused of it. And so I think it's really important to keep that in perspective, that it's not a women's issue, uh, it's a human issue. This issue of sexual violence has been an issue for probably as long as humans have existed. Um, And it has been getting more attention, which has been great. Um, There's obviously a lot of tension within the movement um, for a lot of different reasons. Um, But there are a couple things that I think we are starting to look at and view right, uh, and start to move in, in a direction that I think is positive. Um, so one thing that I notice is that sexual violence is now viewed more as a continuum than as a very black and white thing. And what I mean by that is not that sexual violence is 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 right or wrong. But what, what I mean is that there's a range of acts from harassment to sexual assault or rape that are still considered valid. Um, and our laws are starting to now reflect that. And I think that that is a major change. I think we're starting to recognize that these forced stranger rape is not the only type of sexual violence that's occurring, and we're trying to build our laws around that. I also think we're starting to recognize that justice for sexual violence survivors might look different, Um, and so there are some brainstorming to think about what are alternatives to reporting that can still help survivors find justice, uh, which I also think is important. Um, I also think that we are starting to recognize now and discuss more these structural norms that reinforce violence. So things like victim blaming, um, sort of having this stereotype of what a perpetrator looks like. And you know now we're starting to recognize that perpetrators can really be anyone, unfortunately. And so just because someone seems like a quote unquote, nice guy or nice person, um, they still are, could be a perpetrator. And I think expanding our idea of what that looks like has been important and also just that violence has been normalized in our society and this um inherent sexism racism that our society has had for an extremely long time um i think that that has been normalized and now i think we're starting to call that out which is really important and building off of that the final thing that i think people are talking about um but there's still a lot of tension and we have a long way to go is that sexual violence is connected to all forms of oppression. And so, like I said, sexism, homophobia, racism, um, they're all overlapping uh, and they're all co-occurring. Co- and so I think we're starting to talk about those things and call it out, but I still don't think we have a long way to go in terms of interventions to meet the needs of uh, the diversity of survivors that we're trying to help. Stigma is a really massive problem that takes a real cultural shift. Uh, And so I think the only thing that we can control are our own mindsets and our own actions. So the first step that I think is important to talk about is the need to promote survivor autonomy. And especially if someone you love has experienced sexual violence, it can be really frustrating and it might be really difficult for you to recognize why they might have an issue reporting or why they might have fears reporting. And so I think it's important to stay front that we need to allow survivors to make their own decisions. But our job, what we can do to help is to provide resources so they can make informed decisions. Uh, And like I said before, justice looks different for everyone. Uh, And so really putting that in the forefront of our minds when we're trying to help the folks in our lives that experience these things. Uh, I also think we can do some of our own personal reflections when we're thinking about sexual assault. And when you see a headline or something in the media, I would challenge you to notice your immediate reaction that you have to headlines. And so often I think we can tell a lot about our biases and our preconceived notions by our immediate reaction to what we see. Uh, And so if you notice that your instant reaction is not to believe the headline, even though you haven't even read the story yet, it might be worth some self-reflection on what are my potential biases and why might those exist. Uh, And I think finally, we can just call out folks who are perpetuating these misconceptions and myths um, very vocally online or in our social circles. It's really difficult to do, uh, but you never know who could be in the room with you hearing those things and being affected by those things. So one of the passions of mine, I, I love research uh, and a lot of my research is based around storytelling uh, and creative uh, mediums. And so that has been really fun uh, for me to do. But what I'm really passionate about is bringing the research and what I learn uh, to communities that can really apply it and use it right away. And so I've done a couple of things in my work and tried to prioritize that research dissemination piece. So for example, at University of Michigan last year, Uh, I did a healing exhibit uh, featuring survivor stories, photographs, um, and that was really well attended. I was really uh, honored and surprised at the diversity of folks that were there. There were parents with their high school kids, there were college students, there were boys, girls, uh, all sorts of different people that were there attending. And so that was really exciting because I think we need to hear the voices of a diversity of people when we're trying to understand what healing looks like because it can be so individual. Uh, we also made a video uh, that we submitted to a couple film festivals based on the stories of survivors um, and it was really, it was really interesting to go through that realm and start to tell stor- um, survivor stories uh, in a way that people can just view in a very simple video as opposed to me needing to spread the message. Uh, it's easier to uh, disseminate when it's a video in a video form. Um, and then finally, uh, through the, the research that I've done, one thing that I noticed is that we've learned a lot from the Me Too movement um, with what folks have been talking about and their experiences, um, but I noticed that a lot of people were actually engaging in research because it was an anonymous space where they can tell their story and then therefore help others. And so I wanted to create a space where survivors could anonymously tell their stories and build our understanding of what the survivor spirit experience is like, um, while not needing to connect any of this to their identity if they're not ready. So I started a nonprofit with some friends uh, called R-Wave where survivors can anonymously tell their stories online, and we're slowly building some uh, interactive components where there can be some mutual support amongst survivors, referring to resources, and ultimately using their stories as data uh, to really leverage it to create change. My takeaway is sort of threefold, but they're all pretty interconnected. So the first thing that I think is important is that one, survivors are everywhere. Uh, you, if you don't think you know a survivor in your life, odds are you probably do and just don't recognize it. So uh, it's really important that we are aware of that when we speak about these issues openly. Uh, the second thing is that the environments we create and the responses we have when people disclose uh, violence to us, they really do matter. Uh, and so it's really up to us to create that environment that's supportive of people's healing and also that prevents violence. And it takes a group effort. And finally, um, I think it's really important to note that sexual violence is incredibly devastating, but healing is possible. Uh, and I think for a lot of survivors out there, it's really common to get to a place where you feel really stuck. And it feels like there's really nowhere to turn and that there might be a no way out. Um, but I've seen many people who've been incredibly stuck um, get better and make a lot of progress. And so I really want to emphasize that it might feel really difficult and setbacks may occur, but it is possible. We know through research that the first person a survivor tells about their experience has an incredible impact on their healing, uh, and it can stick with them for a very long time. So if you are uh, put in a position where someone discloses violence to you, your response is really important. And so I just wanna give a quick plug, Uh, the Sexual Assault Prevention and Awareness Center does fantastic uh, lectures on responding to disclosures. And through working with them, I picked up this uh, little thing from them to really briefly teach about how to respond to disclosures. Um, But the first step is to listen. So sort of listen first, speak second. Um, Make sure you believe the survivor or tell them that you do because often even if you believe them and if you don't actually say the words, they might not recognize that you really are taking this seriously. Uh, And then ultimately support them in any way they can. The easiest question to ask is how can I be helpful? Try to let them make their own decisions and ultimately refer them to the resources that you know. So being knowledgeable of resources locally and maybe even nationally can be really helpful. And second, I think it's important for us to be vigilant bystanders. If you really feel like something's wrong and you're in a situation where you think something doesn't feel right, I would listen to your gut. Uh, And if you're unsure about a situation, there is uh, the Rain hotline, and they're always providing fantastic um, advice and thoughts um, when situations don't feel right. So that's 800-656-HOPE. And so I think if that's a number you aren't, haven't heard of before, it's worth uh, trying to put into your memory because you really can uh, do a lot with that organization. I just really want to directly address the survivors who might be listening, um, and also potentially the, the folks that are trying to support survivors. Uh, and for the survivors listening, I just want to say, you matter, your stories matter, and your healing matters. And it can be really difficult when you try to compare your experience to other people and things that you see on the news, but the experience that you had and the feelings that you're feeling are valid. uh, And the healing process can be difficult, but you don't need to go through it alone. And for people who are trying to support survivors, your job is also uniquely difficult because there is so much you can do, but there's also so much you can't do. So just really trying to be gentle with yourself and take care of yourself um, and put your mask on first before you offer assistance. That's the best advice I could give. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.